0: There is not enough women receiving funding for businesses. I think part of that is because women want to do things slightly differently and don't necessarily want to get on a treadmill where you have no life, which is what VC funding basically means.
1: We are the caretakers and it's really hard for us to put ourselves first and to know that for you to be your best at anything, whether it's your business or your life or whatever you're doing, you have to take care of yourself first.
2: A guest from last series, Baroness Martha Lane Fox, quite rightly proclaimed, you cannot be what you cannot see, which is why we work hard on secret leaders to showcase as much gender balance as possible. Now, whilst the numbers for equality are rapidly improving, it remains a fact that of the six million businesses in Britain, only one fifth are run by women, and there are twice as many male entrepreneurs as female ones, despite us having one million more women in our population. In the USA, when it comes to funding, the numbers seem to be even more bleak. Companies founded solely by women garnered 2.3% of the total capital invested in venture-backed startups. Back in the UK, for every £1 that goes into VC investments, all female founding teams get less than 1p. All male teams get 89p and mixed gender get the remaining 10 pence. However, it's worth noting that most VC deals happen in the software industry where only 26% of the workforce itself is female. Indeed, untapped female entrepreneurship may be the greatest economic opportunity of the 21st century. So in this episode, we have four different perspectives from four brilliantly experienced founders. We have the expert investor perspective with Reshma Sahoni, the co-founder of Seedcamp, who have deployed over £100 million into early stage companies, including spotting unicorns like TransferWise and Revolut. We have the non-VC root founder with Renee Elliott, who founded Planet Organic as the UK's first health food store chain. We have the non-VC Root founder with René Elliott, who founded Planet Organic as the UK's first health food store chain. There's Alex DePledge, who can offer the perspective from a consumer-facing tech-enabled marketplace that raised millions and exited for £30 million, despite some struggles with investors on the way. And finally, one of those 26% in tech, our technology software entrepreneur, Alethea Navarro, whose company Skimlinks has raised over $25 million, helping publishers monetize advertising online. On the subject of diversity, their views are as diverse as the gender debate, so get ready for a smorgasbord of insights from the UK's leading female founders. We hope you enjoy. Thank you very much for coming to yet another live recording for the Secret Leaders podcast. This one in particular, which is of course all about entrepreneurship, equality, founding and funding from both sides of the table, meaning we have both those who ask for money and those who write the cheques with us tonight. So... When Rich and I started planning how we wanted to make Secret Leaders stand out, we simply noted two things. One, we'd do our best to put out a podcast about business and entrepreneurship that was kind of funny instead of just stuffy, like a lot of the stuff we were listening to, um, and find guests with humility and honesty who are willing to talk about the tough stuff in their journeys. And secondly, we would showcase greater diversity than what we could find in other business podcasts simply by keeping our guest ratio at 50-50 gender split. Right, let's crack on. Can we have our first guest to the stage, Renee Elliott from Planet Organic? Right, Renee, uh, you came to the UK from America, um, as we're clearly going to hear, regardless. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, and you spotted an opportunity that was missing on the high street and founded Planet Organic back in the day. So can you give us a quick insight? Like, When did you start it? What was that sort of aha moment that you noticed? Because definitely very early for that kind of thing. Now it seems pretty normal. Yeah.
1: Hi, everyone. <laughs> nice to be here. I think what's almost more interesting is that is the reason I started Planet is because when I was 19, I read a book about the meat industry in America. And I was so horrified about how they raise cattle. And I loved meat. I'd been brought up on meat. that I couldn't eat meat anymore. And I became a vegetarian at 19 because organic meat wasn't really an option at that time. And that began my journey of looking for better, better food, better things in life, because I realised that no-one was looking after my best interest. And I was so shocked as a very innocent, naive, you know, American girl, small-town girl, to realise that the government, the supermarket, whoever I thought was supposed to be looking after me, wasn't. And that's why the idea of the organic supermarket... There were great health food stores in England at the time, but no-one was doing the full-service organic supermarket with meat, fish, juice bar, body care, everything... And I wanted to create a safe space to shop where people could trust that I actually care about your health and that I looked at every product, I read every label, I tasted everything and gave you the best food that was available.
2: And your journey wasn't so simple. So, you know, you had had the lovely insight, but actually you ended up, um, and we talked about this in our podcast episode on Series 2, having a really tough time with litigation, with your co-founders, having to go to work in a really uncomfortable environment and you ended up, you know, move, moving the company onto private equity and leaving the company later. Like, how, how do you reflect on that period of your life, which, you know, listening uh, to you talk at the time, you know, it sounds incredibly stressful mm-hmm. having to go to work with people you're having a legal battle with.
1: Yeah, it was, a, it was really tough. I thought it was the hardest, it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And, and the thing about that is you don't know what you're capable of until life throws something at you. And you have incredible resilience and ability if you trust yeah. yourself. And that's what I learned through that time. But it was awful, and I thought it was the hardest thing I could ever have done until I had children. <laughs> so I always say to entrepreneurs, go ahead and start the business, you know, take that leap of faith, but think really carefully before you have children. I have three. But no, it was really tough. But ultimately, and oddly, I ended up with what I wanted, which is I had wanted Planet Organic for myself my partner was very, from a very privileged background. I wanted to work with my husband, and that's ultimately what happened. But it was a nasty time, uh, 14 months in litigation, and then a two-week trial in the high courts, which was devastating. And you had
2: to work in this office. In this very weeks, small so. office. And yeah. for
1: me, I'm a, my MO is put it on the table. If we can talk about it, I know we can get through it. And from the day he said, I want the company, you're going, he refused to speak to me, and that is like, kill me kill me now. So it was awful because I thought we we can just talk about it. And he refused to speak to me. So it was incredibly stressful. And they tried to, there were three men, hate to say this, but they did try and intimidate me and kind of bully me out of the business, which was really hard. I was in fight or flight or freeze mode for 14 months, which kind of wrecked my physicality for a while.
2: And now, looking back on that experience, I mean, it's a far cry. Obviously, you're doing something very different now. It's a little insight into how you spend your time now instead?
1: Well, the planet got easier, although it's always been a rocky journey. And when I started my second business, which is an academy for life skills and business skills, to support other people on this entrepreneurial and life journey, I thought, at this age, it has to be about ease and fun or I'm not doing it because those days of it being really tough are over for me. So I've chosen a partner who I trust completely because I learned the mistake I made looking back was I didn't trust my gut. And that is a real thing for me now. There was a little red flag and I thought, oh, it'll be fine. It wasn't fine. (laughs) So my, my current partner is fantastic and we're working supporting other people on this journey and it is about... We always say our MO is about ease and having fun.
2: OK, thank you. We'll come back on to that. But first, can we have our second guest to the stage? Alex, if you can put the bottle of wine down.
0: Hi, Alex. I feel like I need to drink a bit of water just to like, offset the image you've already created about me. <laughs> yeah,
2: the image you were in full, full character mode, which is great a very method of you. <laughs> um okay so uh, Alex you built the tech startup uh Hassle before the tech boom in tech city really with a cleaning marketplace which was hassle.com and you did it rather unusually in a co-founding team of two women um because as you said on the podcast episode you thought at the time men were just a bit shit. So as accomplished as you are your version of uh, of Jules your co-founder is is Unbelievably impressive, too. So, give, give us a little background on how you met Jules and how you guys started.
0: So, men are good for some things, like dog everyone. So, to the men in the audience, I apologize. Um, thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, so, how did I meet Jules? Um, so, I worked at Accenture for seven years but when you join Accenture, if any of you are in corporate what they do is like when they send you on out of town projects um you're not senior enough to have your own room so you have to share it with someone so it was like day three of this project in warrington which is the only is only famous for having the largest under nine uh, under 21s club in the whole of europe which i frequented on a regular basis despite being like 24 um, <laughs> and they had great men Anyway, um, so I met Jules, and she's, like, very short and, like, dark, spiky hair and really quiet, but had this wicked sense of humour, and then there's, like, me, and we had to, like, room together. And other way, if it hadn't been for that, there was no way we would have ever been friends, because um, she's, she would have been intimidated by me. She was like, you were so loud. Um, and I was like, and you were so boring until I got to know you. And then, you know, it was a match made in heaven, really.
2: OK. <laughs> to be fair, Jules tells the same story, so it's OK. <laughs> OK, so after a seven, uh, £6 million Series A funding round led by Axel... Yep. yep. ..you ended up selling Hassel to a German competitor for about €30 million, Euros, meaning that you had the opportunity to start up again the next time, as you have done with Resi, yep. without the pressure from VCs, which I think is something that you talk about a fair amount. We'll, we'll come on to that experience a little bit later, but if you can remember, um, which I'm sure you can, obviously, so what I meant was when you remember immediately right now recall the story um, of what it was like pitching for investment before you ever had a track record
0: so look heddle was a bit shit like a bit like men um in the sense that um it was a good idea so we wanted to be like the local services for everything so dog walkers cleaners babysitters hairstylists like you name it so it's a great vision right you at that time in 2011 you could order anything from eBay or Amazon, but you couldn't find people in your local neighbourhood. So idea good, execution bad. Um, so we tried to do too many things, and we were, you know, we were too many things to too many people, and we did all of it badly. So in fairness, pitching, They were absolutely right to turn us down because we were not investable, really. To be quite honest, like when the whole Me Too movement started, and everyone was like, "Oh, there's going to be something going on in tech." It wasn't really the thing that I kind of thought to myself, "Oh, I'm you know, I I've got something to contribute" because quite honestly, like Jules and I never had that many bad experiences and I think predominantly is because when we were asking for meetings, Alex and Jules, very androgynous names, you know, you know, we could have been two blokes and there was a couple of meetings where we turned up and they did a double take. <laughs> okay. Um but I think the only time it ever really happened to us, we were in a pitch environment, and I was sitting one of... There was ten pitches, and I was the only woman, which was pretty standard, um, and they were like, and next up is Alexandra de Pledge of Teddle. And I stood up, and he went, and she's a woman! Yeah. And I was like, "Geez." Yeah. But I genuinely think that I didn't have much more issue than that, because um, it was two women. So when two women walk in a room, you don't notice that they're women, if that makes sense, because... There's no man to go, oh, she's a woman. It's like just two people. And so I think we just always had a, um, a fairly decent shot because they're just, I don't know. Well, also, by the time we were pitching Hassle, it was a good business. And so um, I'm not saying that the stats lie because they don't lie. There is not enough women receiving funding for businesses. I think part of that is because women want to do things slightly differently, and we can talk about that later, and ne- don't necessarily want to get on a treadmill where you have no life. Mm-hmm which is what VC funding basically means. And then the other half of it is there's clearly inherent biases. I think the data doesn't lie. But for me and Jules, our personal experience wasn't horrific.
2: Perfect And sadly, I never got
0: hit on, which I'm really bummed out about.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see if our next lady got hit on then instead, shall we? (laughs) Alethea, can you come to the stage, please? First question, tell us about the times you got hit
0: on.
3: (laughs) You know what? I have almost exactly the same reaction. I I saw this Me Too movement and I'm like, is it just that I'm really unattractive? (laughs) (laughs) damn it. No. Uh, No, I never had... I, I don't have a story to tell and I don't
0: know... I think it wasn't really
2: one of my questions. You don't have to. <laughs> okay, well,
0: it's a, it's <laughs> whiplier, I like it. It's like literally yeah. 18 minutes into this podcast and we've hijacked it. Yeah, from yeah,
2: sand- yeah. It's, actually Alex's, it's Alex's <laughs> question, to be clear.
0: Look, um, I
3: think that coming from a tech background, I think the, the energy in the room is very different when you go in yeah. but
2: well, back just to, to, give, to give well to give the introduction to what you guys did. So, yes. um, it's Skimlinks uh, helped publishers get paid by tracking the customer journeys when anyone bought products online. So, in my last business, I was a customer of yours, as yep. you know. So, we've known each other for quite a long time. Um, but your uh, your story actually starts back in Australia, where you're from. Yes. Despite the Alethea thing, if you listen to our podcast episode, Alethea was <laughs> one of the first people that I ever interviewed, and at that point, I just kept calling her Alicia as you would and half the interview was her going it's alethia like how many more times so it's taken me a long time but i'm finding i you did there.
3: actually take note that it was pronounced correctly yeah exactly
2: exactly um right so i do i do learn just very slowly um but if i remember rightly uh your um your journey into technology actually started from a teacher an experience with a teacher when you were younger so can you give us a little insight into what happened there
3: if everyone's watched films from the 80s and 90s, like, you know, Breakfast Club and all those kinds of films, you know, I really related to that kind of Ali Sheedy character, like the one that, the nerdy one that's in the corner. And I I was very geeky. I taught myself to code. I taught myself to type on a typewriter from a book I borrowed at the library. and And, you know, and I, you know, it was full of imaginary tales and so on. So I was one of those, you know, odd kids uh, and was um, possibly condemned to be forever in that corner until, um, yeah, my maths teacher um, in years 11 and 12, who was this like wild kind of daring woman who in maths class would talk about the boys that she dated on the weekend and would encourage us to like, if we had period pain, to lie on the floor with our legs on the wall because that helped. (laughs) And one time we were, like, ahead of the other classes that were doing maths at our level, and so she said, you know what, today we're just going to watch Roger Waters' The Wall because that's going to teach you more about life than this class of, uh, of maths. So I just, like, fell in love with her in a completely, like, non-lesbian way, but it was a real it was a real love. And what was amazing about this woman is that, you know, I thought she'd be going, you know, she'd be favouring all the... Um, all the kind of popular girls, but instead she she noticed me and she thought I was kind of special, and even Nick named Butt, which <laughs> makes more sense when uh, my best friend was called if, so she, we were if and but because of the way that we started all our sentences. Uh, and she just she she was the first person that I thought was awesome that thought I was awesome too, and it was the first time I had some belief in myself.
0: Are you still in touch with her? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I her can daughter... say, like, there's so much love when you talk about oh, it. It's so
3: sweet. It is really sweet, yeah. And, I, and she'll listen to this and her daughter's now, like, 21 and living in Europe and I talk to her daughter all the time. Oh. It's really sweet. Her daughter wasn't even born at the time, obviously. Um, but yes, that, that, was, uh, that, that, that was the only time you'll ever hear someone go, oh, I've got four hours of maths, yes, because she made it really fun.
2: Okay, so after after school, you ended up founding Skimlinks, and after 10 years and 25 million dollars in funding and a um, billion dollars a year tracked uh, in revenue through your platform, um, through your technology, you stepped down recently last year as CEO, and you've um, got a new experience to share, which is, I guess, you know, not being the CEO, which must be something that you've had to adjust to uh, in an unusual way. Like, what is that new pace of life like for you?
3: I think there's been some really interesting phases through it all. So um, the the worst period was like the two months before it was announced. So I knew it was happening, and I was planning for it, and doing a preemptive handover, and that was hard because I was just dealing preemptively with what it meant to announce that. And then the day I announced it was very emotional, obviously. But the next day I was fine, um, and then I went through a phase of which I kind of regret, but I just basically took all sorts of meetings and I think I wasted a lot of time, but it was my kind of, let's just see what the universe throws at me phase. (laughs) Then, thankfully, I sent myself to South America uh, for a few months, which meant that I could just actually chill for a while, so that was good. And then I came back and was in uh, my next phase, which was, okay, let's find some interesting work to do, which... Uh, sustains me financially because Skimlinks hasn't... I I haven't exited the company, so I still need to to work, um, but I want to work in a different way now. So I spent some time uh, meeting with different VCs and different companies and working that out and also concurrently playing with lots of ideas about what company I would want to start next because, as it turns out, I I just can't not, it it seems. Uh, And so now I'm in the phase where I've been working for a while and I'm now ready to... Stop and start something new.
2: Very exciting. Yeah. And you're in the phase where you've got a new puppy, which you brought with you tonight. Yes. Which is somewhere.
3: she's over there. Behaving somewhere.
2: amazingly because can't hear it. Okay, being looked after in that corner there. Excellent. Well, that's the
3: thing that when you suddenly are not working all the time, you can you can get a puppy.
2: <laughs> 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 that's not advice. Just so we're clear, <laughs> just, just in case. Okay, so, finally, uh, we've got the great honour of having some perspective from the other side of the table. So, Reshma, can we have you up to the stage, please? There's plenty of room. You you don't have to squeeze up quite so much.
0: How come you're having a mic, Reshma? Are you special? She's going to do a song and dance routine later. All by myself. Oh, bless
2: you. I, I, I asked... It turns out there wasn't actually enough mics. And I literally, <laughs> first person I said, would you rather a mic or one of these? She said the mic. I was like, that's easy. That's done then. Perfect. Um, okay, so Reshma, uh, you are the co-founder of uh, one of Europe's largest um, and most successful uh, seed funds. For anyone that doesn't actually know what that means when I say that, can you give a little example, of, well, a description of what seed camp is and what Seed Venture Capital is?
4: Sure. Um, so we invest roughly around 100 to 500K Level of checks into 100 to 2 million size rounds. Um, so we're taking, you know, bleeding edge risk. Basically, a lot of the kind of insane businesses. You know, you you guys and girls will be starting out there. We'll probably be the first institutional check in, um, and then hopefully, I think to you know to the point of not every business should take VC because we we do pressure our companies, right? So I do kind of want to just uh, put uh, put that out there. Is you're look, the there. only VC I think I've ever heard admit that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, um, because what's our business model? We have to return money at the end of of the day. And, um, you know, for us, about uh, only five or four of our companies are going to actually succeed out of every 10. And so, yes, there's there's pressure all around, I think. Um, Hence, VC is absolutely not the right track for most companies out there, I would say
2: we've managed to stay friends through the years because I was a re- I really early on in my journey got rejected from seedcap which means that we never got to let each other down which means that you know you get to stay friends which is great <laughs> um, uh, and that's why I actually respect her she's got very good taste knows knows uh, knows <laughs> a, a, a hit when she sees one um okay so what was it like co-founding um a seed venture fund uh back in the day again like you were really early um in the scene with this i mean this is a lot more common now but you know, you came over from America, um, where I guess it was a lot more common. Yeah. And you're one of the first seed funds in Europe.
4: Yeah, one of the first seed funds in Europe, also the first one founded by a, a female sort of part, partner uh, since I think many generations. Um, so, so yeah, quite unique, and it's amazing to watch what's happened, you know, in the in the decade since. I will say, I think the the American in me, it was it was such a positive trait to have to be American because I think I just was not self-aware of how um, annoying, loudmouth, or anything I think I was being, and so it just you know it, it gave me a lot of confidence to just sort of go. go Go out there, um, and also I will say I was just, you know, I was lucky or in the right place, or I have I've had the right background in terms of universities and the brands and the work experiences I've had that I was just able to be in the the right community or the or, or, or right like-minded folks who were there. Um, to support in, in helping get this off the ground. Absolutely, we got our share of, you know, this is crazy, this is a dumb idea, there are no great entrepreneurs in Europe, um, you're going to waste your money, but but luckily, uh, I didn't listen to those folks, I actually listened to, you know, Nicholas Zenstrom, founder of Skype, Danny Reimer, Index Ventures, uh, Saul and Robin Klein of, of Local Globe, and, uh, and Peter Nixie, and, you know, I listened to people like that who said, absolutely, this needs to happen in Europe, there's a huge amount of talent and, and seed count, mm-hmm needs to exist, so I think I I listen to the right people. (laughs)
2: <laughs> and, and you've also talked about the fact that you know being a, a female founder. Like you never really noticed that. You actually described yourself as like you think you're a big, strong, a tall, man.
4: good-looking, tall, white good-looking, man.
2: white man. Like my
4: husband, which I forgot to say the last time. So <laughs> you know, <laughs> I said David Noel instead. But anyways. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: okay. So that is the, uh, the the general background part. You know, done and dusted from our esteemed guests. So it's time to get into more of the debate, which is life as a founder. Um, from both sides of the table. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner, Vanta, comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. looking back on your careers so far uh what have been some of the toughest moments for you um, that have left you frustrated or uh, like worse still um you know disappointed and frustrated uh, you know just Alethea, why don't you start you made the biggest <laughs> face so what has been the toughest moment in your entrepreneurial journey, something that you'd like to highlight to other people to watch out for or partic- potentially anticipate?
3: I, I made the face because it's... I mean, I think we all made the face because it's, like, the question you always get asked. And the problem with the question is that you can't act Like, if I was actually completely honest with this, A, it would take too long, and B, you just can't. So then you have to kind of come up with a sanitised kind yeah. of one. But, you yeah. know, I'll give you, like... <laughs> The high-level snapshot, because enough time has passed and the statute of limitations is no longer an issue, Uh, but I would say the hardest time I had to deal with was when we were about to do a fundraise and instead uh, the FBI came to my house and issued me a grand jury subpoena for alleged price fixing because of an entrapped situation with a competitor in three different jurisdictions internationally and uh, you can't raise money when you're under investigation and we didn't have enough money, but we somehow... And also then I was told, which really rubbed salt in it, that um, as you're not married, uh, anything that you tell anyone else can be used against you in court. But, you know, your co-founder who is married... You know, he can talk to his wife. So that was a lovely moment of, ah, thanks. But anyway, it was fine in the end and we won and we ended up buying a company through that process and didn't let anyone go. But going through that was really shitty. (laughs)
2: I <laughs> can't believe you preambled that with a, well, I can't really talk about a quick experience. Enough time's
3: passed, it's yeah.
2: done. Yeah, OK. Well, <laughs> that, was, that was enough to give most people palpitations. Um, <laughs>
3: yeah. It just means that then, after that, I think the worst thing about, and I think everyone else will then nod about this, is every morning when you wake up as a founder and you pick up your phone, you think, what will I discover yeah. that will ruin my day?
2: Yeah. 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 <laughs> Alex, what did you discover that ruined your day? <laughs>
0: Oh, at the risk of infendi- offending an entire nation when I say this, France.
2: <laughs> well, let's just leave it there, then. <laughs> no detail required.
4: I think, um, I think one of the things is... <laughs> yeah, just... I thought we're leaving it there. Um, no, everyone's letter... like, what's wrong with France?
0: Um, as if... I, get no, it. I, mean I get it. it. What's wrong with...
4: <laughs> yeah, <I mean. laughs> with
0: France? A lot of things. Oh, just, I went I and mean, we tried to do business in France and it was... Um, just the most mind-bogglingly difficult time of my entire life, and I wanted to kill everybody in France because they like they raided our offices uh, for brand infringement. It turns out that like if someone's used a phrase in a advert once, they've got proprietary IP over it, and we use the word menage a trois in a. 250 grand, 250,000-euro bus and tube advert, and I had to go out and physically remove the posters, (laughs) in fact. Then we got raided because they weren't sure about the status of the cleaners, despite me spending about 200 grand in legal fees. Um, And they came and they took... I mean, it's like an FBI investigation. They took, like, suitcases of all of our paperwork... And then to top it off, I had a French employee in the UK who resigned to go back to France because she had issues. Claire, if you're listening, I still hate you. Um, and um, she tried to claim that she worked for the French office when I made people redundant. And, cl- and in France, I don't know if you know this, but they get, like, fucking eight months... Oh, I'm not allowed to swear. Not
2: in front of my mum.
0: Sorry. Mum,
2: earmuffs, earmuffs.
0: This is what I did to my kids. Um, yeah, they, they get, like, eight, that, like eight months or? standard... Redundancy, so I had some graphic designer who'd worked for me for three months. I had pay him 8 months' salary. And then I've got this girl, and then she took me to court. So for a while, I, wasn't, I couldn't go to France because I would have been
3: arrested. So every time I went, when I was under investigation, every time I went to the US, they, do, they take you aside to a special room because you're on a watch list. So you'd have, like, your, under- your dirty I underwear sorted I think we're up sorted, normal,
4: through.
3: by the way. <laughs> my, my VC assured me that this is a good sign because, like, when you get sued or when you get into legal strife is when you're doing well. So, oh, you
1: know. OK,
0: well,
3: there you go.
1: So R- that's Renee? France. I easier? Sorry, a little to the people in the audience. <laughs> well, what was the question? <laughs> well,
2: it was it was one of your harder times. I mean, if you've got something yeah, compared, compared to that, that's quite yeah. impressive. But
1: I was thinking about giving birth at home, but I think you're talking about work. <laughs> um, well, it was the it was the court case. I mean, it was awful, and. What I did through that time, because, again, we always get asked this question, little tidbits you can pass on to your listeners, but it is really important, and it's not just, um, you know, it's not to be taken that lightly, because I learned a lot through that time, and I would have been devastated. It was was Mm. awful. Mm. I was in fight-or-flight mode for 14 months, which is devastating for the body, and what I did is I took care of myself, and that's not easy for women. Who here, what women here in the audience think... It's really easy to put yourself first before you look after your kids, your husband, your friends, your mom, anything. Who thinks it's easy? Hands up. Okay, there's always one or two. Great. That's great. But we have a uterus. We are the caretakers, and it's really hard for us to put ourselves first and to know that... For you to be your best at anything, whether it's your business or your life or whatever you're doing, you have to take care of yourself first. And I learned it through the litigation. And I stopped drinking. I meditated twice a day. I ate really well. I worked out. And... I mean,
2: these are just things people expect you to do as a founder of Planet Organic. Yeah,
1: <laughs> But I, I this really... Is just like the vision we have for what that person right. would be like. I read, I read Sun Tzu's Art of War. I read the Bhagavad Gita, yes. to know thy enemy. You know, I prepared myself, and I really focused, and I won. And the lesson I learned was take care of yourself. But the other lesson I learned, because I was doing... When I first started doing speaking, someone said to me, did you have any idea that your partner, that this may go wrong. And I said, well, yeah. There was a little red flag when we first met, and I thought, as I said, it'll be fine, and it wasn't. And the lesson I learned, the only times I've gone wrong in life, and it's that time and another time that I can't talk about, is I didn't listen to myself, I didn't trust myself, and the message I give all the time is trust yourself, listen to your gut. And I don't mean your head. Your head is not your gut, your head is muddled up with Lots of advice and well-meaning people and thoughts and ideas and your gut. When your gut says, don't do it, then run a mile. Yeah, I agree.
2: And what's the other experience you can't talk about?
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. holders. Reshma, I mean, you're a VC, so I guess we just ask the times you've crushed other people's dreams. <laughs>
4: exactly, <laughs> exactly. Over and over again, yeah. Um, no, and it is, it is kind of a phone calls associated with, with bad things your companies do, right? And it's like, it's all your fault. Because you put money in, um, there's certain things going on right now. Uh, similarly, oh, well, I love to, I can guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, so I think it's feeling that responsibility. But I mean, um, I, I'll just you know nothing, nothing super dramatic. But I, I think a lot of sort of founders out there, VCs are no different. Is you know when we started no one, no one believes you, right? No one has faith in you. No one thinks you're going to be anything. And no one pays attention to you. They belittle you. They underestimate you. And I, that's frustrating, obviously. And anytime you, you have some success, everyone wants it. Everyone's there. And everyone's, you know, trying to, to get your time. I just find that really, it just angers me. And uh, so, so yeah, I think, you know, I'm conscious of, of our journey and who was there for us uh, at the very beginning and, and not losing sight of that and not getting too carried. It's, it's, it's Yeah, it makes me angry. It's good to know
2: you have the same experience as Eminem. (laughs) (laughs) He says the same thing. So true. So
4: true. We're we're like that. It's just
2: parallel. It's amazing. Um, Okay, so uh, our next question is around funding. So can you talk to us about uh, financing your businesses? Uh, There's a lot said about how much more complicated it is for uh, female founders to get funded, and the stats are obviously all there to demonstrate it, but... Between you on the sofa, you've basically uh, funded and raised and exited over £200 million between you. So it's not like... Woo! Yeah. Oh, us. It's not like um, you're following in that typical model. So I'd like to know, um, realistically, what your take and experience is of this and how you've seen that change over the years. Um, so, Renee, if you could start.
1: <laughs> I raised money so long ago. <laughs> it's completely different now. And we didn't raise a lot to start out with, but it was impossible. It was in 1994. We were trying to raise half a million for a concept no one understood at all. So we would try and describe it. We had photos from the states. We would talk about it. And they would say, oh, so like a big Holland and Barrett. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd say, "Nope." You know. So it was really, really tough. And in the end, we couldn't get anyone to back us. And it was my partner's father's friends who backed us as well as my best girlfriend who said, I believe in you as an entrepreneur and I want to put my inheritance in. And I said, don't do it. But she did. So it was really tough then. And then we had other, a few um, private investors come in who funded us for years, which made it a lot easier. But that has its complications.
2: But now you're a, like mentor to a lot of... Do you see it like being like so much easier, or do you, what are the kind of parallels you well, see?
1: Well, no, they say it's really hard, but there's a lot of there's a lot more money out there. There's a lot of investors interested in social innovation, in interesting business. So I believe it's it's it must be easier, but you've got to be incredibly tenacious. You know, you have to be so determined, and people aren't always. You know, we were doing a fundraising one time for Planet, and the shareholders were refusing to invest. And I was so determined to open the next store. I can't remember what number it was. And they were so unhelpful. They were being so unhelpful. And we were in a good market and they said, well, you know, they were quite snitty about it. And they said, well, where's the money going to come from? And I said, from wherever it is now, which is a quote from Maharishi Yogi. I said, I just have to go out there and find it. And in the end, we did. There's always money out there. Yeah. You just have to go find it. Yeah. And there are people, and I'm not saying it's easy, but having your own business isn't easy. Mm-hmm. And if you believe in it and you want to do it and you're that, you want to do this with your life so you don't get to the end of your life and think, really, that was it? Then you go out there and you raise the money.
2: And Alethea, $25 million of funding is uh, a lot for a UK company in any kind of measure. So what's been your experience of, of, of fundraising?
3: I think it is always... Um... Challenging. I think that there is a misconception that some people have that uh, raising money is like being on uh, what's the American, what's the British American Idol equivalent? You X know, factor. X Factor, you know, where if you just believe it enough and you're passionate <laughs> enough. And look, like that X Factor is important in meetings, but what I've learned over the years, and now also that I'm doing um, some oh. EIR work for a VC myself, which means entrepreneur and residence for a couple of VCs, what what I realised is that they look for different things. Like, yes, passion and that X factor is one thing, but they're also, and this is a thing that, that Reshma was alluding to, now that I understand a little bit more about how VC works, it really helps you understand how to pitch it because the revenue model of VC is such that they raise different funds and they make their 2% or whatever annual fee from the funds that they deploy... And for them to be able to raise their next fund, they need to show that their previous fund has increased in value. And the only way that they can do that is if you raise money, if you raise another round. So that is why, if you start the journey of raising money, you need to basically be committing to raising money every two or so years in order for your VC to show that they they have made a good choice. Um, I mean, and if you don't, you're considered sort of a failure from that fund or, you know, you get slightly less attention from them. And so understanding that and that that's a dynamic that you have to play with is really important because if if you go in, and this is, I think, why some female-led businesses don't get funded, and, and I hate the term lifestyle business, but if you have a business that you can get to profitability very quickly and can make you a lot of money very quickly... That is actually not a VC-able model. <laughs> like, you raise money from VCs if you're gonna need a capital injection every two years in order to reach a certain growth trajectory. And that's the story that you need to tell in order to raise money. Um, and we were lucky that, you know, we, we had that. And uh, early in my journey, I struggled. I, I, I spent, it took a year to raise my seed round.
2: And How much I, was your seed round?
3: Half a million pounds. And it took a long time, and I and initially for the first half of that, I was on my own. I was a I was a single co-founder, and so you know the the thought that maybe it's because I'm a woman, but it wasn't because I'm a woman that I thought that I had the issue. It was because I only have a certain breadth of skills, and I recognised that I was lacking in some skills, and that those skills are probably important. Uh, when you're being assessed by a VC. I wasn't great at financial modelling. I wasn't great at talking about numbers. And they are important when you're talking to a VC. So I just did what a good entrepreneur does. And I was like, well, let's run an experiment. Let's bring a man along with me that's good at finances and see if that makes a difference. And I brought along one of my best friends in university who was an entrepreneur as well. And I just said, let's just come along and see, you know, just help me with the numbers bit. And we raised our funding. And I made him my co-founder. And Joe Stepniewski is the best co-founder you could ever hope for. But, but I don't think it's because I'm a woman it was hard. I think it was that I recognised that I had a deficit in skills and I corrected it.
2: Well, Ressiree, you've got a pretty similar story, really. Um, although I know you wouldn't say you weren't as sharp on the numbers. Um, but you started Seedcamp Camp um, on your own and brought in Carlos, your partner, two or three years later, right? Yeah. And was that from a skill gap point of view or just because you felt like sharing your equity?
4: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, and uh, so, so I mean, again, when I when I started, and Alethea. Also has some of the same people involved. Um, you know, I had a, I had that brilliant group of people that I mentioned before around me, so you know I didn't feel alone as such, and, and they were a key part of helping me raise the money uh, in the in the early days. I mean, as, absolutely, with with Carlos coming on three years later, it you know was very much a conscious decision to. Well, first of all, I couldn't manage uh, a, a new fund by myself it, uh, in terms of the deal flow and, and bringing on companies, but the person um, I chose to to approach to. join Join me. Actually, it was first sitar um, because if anyone knows, this is pretty funny because we get mistaken a lot. And then we both we both literally looked at each other and said no. And so then I said, oh, Carlos, you know that. But uh, in Carlos. It, it's a lot of skill set that that I'm not strong at, um, and I'm a huge believer in sort of shared value systems applied differently, right? And 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 we we're, we exemplify that. So we're both engineers. We're extremely numbers driven. Um, we're extremely so, sort of engineering process driven. Our team is quite analytical. So we, you know, absolutely are very good. at at the analytical base, but we've applied our knowledge in very different ways. And so we we are quite differently different. We think about the world in very different ways. We fight a lot or used to. I think we've found a nice happy marriage now, but, um, you know, we fought a lot and and figured out what we are as a a team. You're
2: someone who doesn't like conflict in general. Yeah. So it's weird that you'd have a co-founder that you have conflict with. Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> <laughs> to say Yeah, I, I, I know I can't explain that, but yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, I, I guess uh, partly, and I think we all we all have this: is we have a safe space to fight. <laughs> um, we can sort of say anything to each other, and when we go out into the world, we are a united front, and we never throw each other under the bus. And and I see founding teams, co-founding teams, do that, and we absolutely don't invest in in uh, in founding teams that do that to each other. It's, it's horrible. So so that's why we're. I think we are able. To, to fight and, and you know, mm. move forward.
3: I, I agree. Like, I, I think when I... Now that I'm on, like, the other side and I see uh, teens and I'm thinking about myself and my future, I'm so grateful for the experience I had, and I'm, I'm sure it's the same with you and Jules, that when you have a... Well, I mean, I've known Joe for, you know, 20 years now, but we we always were in a place where we would be able to really get angry... Not angry, we were no angry, but we could be very honest to the point of, like, quite... like biting hard truths but we said them with the knowledge that it never would make a difference to the fact that we fundamentally loved each other and and having that basis was made made honesty possible which meant that we could be good co-founders.
2: It used to be that um, if you went from founder to VC, you'd gone to the dark side. But he's gone to Facebook. So he's gone he's to really Facebook. gone to the dark side.
3: <laughs> I yeah. know, I bless That's him.
2: That's a newer dark side, it's like lower than VC. <laughs> anyway, yes, finally, uh, finally,
4: finally something, something, something
2: even more no, evil I than venture you. capital. <laughs> okay. Um, Alex, you've got a unique perspective because you were an entrepreneur in residence at Index, which is uh, one of the most famous venture capital funds in the world. And you also had uh, an experience, uh, you know, during your startup, which you said you're happy to talk about as long as we played you with wine. Rich played you yeah, with no, wine. No, no, I'm
0: empty. Has anyone
2: knows? Uh, you know, you got to fuel the tank, mate. Yeah, sorry. Um, so, so the
0: original question was.
2: Yeah. OK, so, yeah, no, the, orig- the original question is, you know, give, give us the perspective of, of, of funding, um, and you've got two stories. One, you were an entrepreneur resident, residence, so you saw lots of, uh, you know, startups come in. How did that feel for you, like, being on the other side of the table suddenly and, and having different kind of perspectives? And then the second one is, what was um, the worst experience you had
0: OK, um, I, so I'll have to say this, which is quite flabbergasting now I've reflected on it. I didn't see one female founder pitch... Index in the six months that I was there, mm. which is pretty devastating if you think about it. Um, and um, what I've realized is I would be the worst investor in the world because I am so cynical about everything. And I was like, oh, that's not going to work. Well, that's such a shit idea. <laughs> that it's. person's like, I know. And, and I'm just not an optimist. And that's why Jules and I never deployed any of the capital that we got from Hassle into angel investments. Also, because angels get screwed because then pref shares come on top. Sorry, Rush. Um, and then screw the angels, so we've never done that. But, um, yeah, it was a really fun, fun time at Index, watching lots of different ideas and different people come through in areas that I would never have... You know, I saw flying cars, not really. I saw autonomous cars, food supplements, like, you know, med tech, like, weird stuff that I was like, oh, my God, these people are really bright. I I could never do that. And then I guess my... um, I think the thing that I'm most devastated about um, in my... What I don't know, what 2011. So, so what, like eight years of being in this industry, and actually just like angry about about not just mu- not just tech, but just generally like fucked off for women about is the way that Mums we're treated. In the audience. Sorry, <laughs> mom. Again, uh, it's the way that women are treated when it comes to having children. It's something that I've tried to correct at Hassle and Resi by giving equal paternity and maternity. Mm-hmm. Pay because I feel like until men start taking some of the kind of primary childcare, uh, we're not going to get advanced. But the thing that really drove that home to me was when um, we'd received funding from a—I'm not going to name him; he's already done it—from uh, a venture capital house. And um, I—we took the money in in the February, and my husband and I had been trying to have children for two years prior to this. And in the November of the previous year, before I'd raised the funding, we. St- uh, we just stopped because I was never going to go down the IVF route because I'm too much of a control freak, yada, yada. Sh- massively sharing too much with people here and whoever's listening. Um, and then, it, so I sort of went into a fundraise and then um, we got the money in the March and in the May... Dave took me on holiday to Egypt, where all good things happen, apparently. <laughs> um, and I put—I remember, like, I said to Jules, like, you can't get hold of me. If you need me, you've got to talk to Dave. And I knew she wouldn't call me unless she needed me. So I put the phone in the safe. And lo and behold, came home and I was pregnant. And I was absolutely devastated because I'd just raised all this money from a VC. And we were opening the office in Ireland in the July. We went on to open an office in France in the September. And then we went to... To Germany and the whole time I was pregnant and I didn't tell anybody. The only people that knew were me and my husband because I knew what was going to happen and lo and behold it happened like uh they just went absolutely batshit crazy that I'd got pregnant and said how dare you um why did you lie to us and then they took Jules into an office and said to her um I'm actually getting emotional. Mm. I said they said to her You've got to promise us that you will never get you won't get pregnant for the last for the next 12 months. And the thing that angers me the most is that if that was an employee-employer relationship, we would have had grounds to sue, take them to our tribunal. but because nothing regulates the money going into new businesses between VCs and startups, there's nothing you could do. And and while the damage was like a few words, what it meant is that when I had my baby on the first of February. On the 2nd of February, Jules was in my kitchen discussing the acquisition in Germany, and three weeks later, I was on a plane to Munich to negotiate a €15 million raise and do this deal. And so I had no time off. And that drove me for the rest of my career with Hassel and then beyond, because i just had another baby. Um, She's nine months old now, and I took eight months off. And I'm really proud of that eight months because I had to do it all over again and I had to prove that you can take time out and you can run a business. And in that time that I was gone, uh, Jules took the business from 70000 in revenue the day I walked out to 150000 at the end of the year. So she doubled the size of the business in six months and I wasn't there. So I defy anyone to tell you that a CEO can't have a child while growing a massive high-growth company. <clears throat>
4: <laughs> uh,
2: you've, you've I am, just come back from pregnancy i well. am
4: a i am a flamboyant optimist so let me uh hopefully give for for the women in the audience especially you know uh some some hope is things are changing i think we're we're learning right all everyone's learning from from uh stories like that, and it's it's amazing that you share that story so openly. Well, that's the first time I've ever shared it. And it took me a
2: Um, year to beg her to share the story. So it's
4: valuable, because I think it teaches, which is the whole point, right? It, it, It teaches people. And so just, you know, so recently we've backed two women who are eight months pregnant... Um, and, and yes, so, you know, one of them wrote to us today saying, uh, listen, uh, my maternity maternity leave starts today. So, uh, and she's in the middle of the the next fundraise and, you know, we're just kind of, how do we support you? How do we get the rest? And that her team is incredible. So great. You do not necessarily need the the CEO there. Um, you know, she says she's going to be back in, in four weeks. I was like, look, you do you. I know I could also be back in in 4 weeks. I was just lucky that I was super healthy and and I, I was able to be back, but uh not everyone can, right? And but but you do you and and don't let anyone and we're here to to support you. So um so I think, you know, there there is a there's a kind of light light at the end of all of that is um we have these incredible women who uh, who are pregnant, who are raising, who, who can but successfully I also think, raise. I also think uh, there's a new
0: generation... Exactly. I think, I mean, I think ..that there's... I would put you in the mix with. True, there's true. a new and... generation of venture capitalists in London that get this, and yeah. they get that the old way of doing things is not appropriate, and I yeah. think they're coming first and foremost. So I'm not bagging the entire industry. Like, I think I got unlucky. I hope I got unlucky and that this is not common...
4: For, people, for female founders, it's it's changed though dramatically. I mean, I think you know, so which is for the good, right? Yeah. And you have things like Albright and um, uh, and you know, place both places physically like that, but funds like that, and uh, uh, who who are female uh, female founded um, VCs investing in female founded companies, and so I think a lot of that's changing. Minority VC, you know, VCs Gen, diversity VC,
0: diverse VC, gem though? I,
3: look, and I. I, this, this, this these stories fill me with a lot of emotion as well because there's the other side of it, which is less often discussed because I think there's a lot of shame associated with it, which is that not everyone wants that level of stress that yeah. comes with being a CEO and everything it takes to be a full-time CEO of a VC-backed high-growth company and also take on an extra responsibility for a child, multiple children, I, like, I can barely cope with a puppy and, like, a part-time job at the moment. But that's what... That and, is what... And this no, is... But, I'm, but I'm serious and I, and I worry about that because I, and I, I have a lot of friends that don't talk about it publicly but that have said to me that, like, I've had children now and I just
0: don't care about my job as much anymore. But, but that's why, for me, like... And I could be, like, sitting here in 20 years com- getting this completely wrong... But for me, until, like, men take care of children, well, that, then yes. we can't, we're can't. we not going to get any further. Right. You can't manage a house, a child or two, and a business and do everything. You've got to have someone who takes half of that off you. I mean, it was really funny. I came in the office today and Will is um, head of marketing and he's had a little girl three weeks before I had my little girl. She's called Mabel and she sounds like a bit of a tyrant. I bloody love her. Like, she's giving him a run for his money. And he is now, like, so I give um, paternity leave. So what he's done with his paternity leave, he takes every Wednesday. So every Wednesday, he looks after his daughter while Mm. Sam's gone back to work. And um, I said to him, how was it? And he was like, oh, my God. I was clock watching till six o'clock because I was like, well, she wouldn't sleep and then she didn't want to eat. And I just was like, I was sat there going, yes. 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 They're getting all of the things that, like, I don't know, there's women in this audience that have got kids and we all know how hard it is. And I think until there's the, an equal, proper equal share of childcare, that's yeah. what's going to that's so what's gonna change for
4: everybody. Agree. And I have rarely... So my husband and I had an open conversation where we decided he would take a step back in his career um, to... to exactly ensure mine could you know could fly and i could come tonight in places like tonight because this is an entirely kind of not uh, anti-parenting. Yeah, yeah. You didn't set Evening. up your whole
2: relationship based on tonight. Yeah, no, just no,
4: tonight. Yeah, 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 yeah. just it's very nice of you. 2019. A bit much. Uh, talk to like 12 people. Yeah, no, it's all about tonight. No, so because this is anti-parenting. Tonight is anti-parenting, right? Like we should be home. And uh, so um so you know, so we had that open conversation. He he's agreed to he agreed a long time ago, very happily actually. Sure, I won't work. Yeah, that's great. Um so uh, <laughs> so so absolutely. And I when I meet um, women who have battled through the age. Ages of 30 to 45 to get to some very senior positions. It's very rare that the husband or partner hasn't stepped back to allow them to do what what they which do. Is so, which is a problem
3: when you like if
4: and when you're with a partner that doesn't won't do want that. that. Absolutely, um, with two hard charging careers. And where you know where that hasn't happened, and it's two hard charging careers. It's very much a au pair nanny driven household, which is absolutely fine too. Again, you do you, but. You know, we we really wanted one parent. That was very much uh, a, a choice we were making, and and so you know it had to be one of a, one of us, right? So, so it's funny. I got an email today about um. So he has a safari business, so he does have a lifestyle business which he's doing in, in Africa. But I got an email about Barcelona. You know, can you come speak? It's a thousand people, and it happens to be when he's away on safari. So you're immediately like, okay, it's you know me and my baby and the and the nanny. Now what? And they're gonna cover. Um, so you know, I'm asking them openly tonight. Is there? going to cover hotel and, and, and flight. So I'm like, will you cover my nanny and my baby to come? Because otherwise, I, I, I can't go. My hus- husband's away, right? So hopefully, they'll say yes, having having seen, heard, heard this tonight. But these are the problems. I'd I mean, like the pressure. This, you know, it's a very passive-aggressive this... approach to asking them. But... I mean, this is the problem, is like... For my brand, I need to be able to speak to a 1,000 people in Barcelona because yeah. there might be a startup there that, that I really should you know, see, but I can't because I've got a baby at, at home, and, and what, do, what do I do? So it's absolutely a day-to-day problem, uh, a huge day-to-day problem. Realistically, where we are, the other
2: side of the argument that gets made as you guys are you know, starting to talk about is there has actually never been a better time to be a female founder because people are really engaging in the idea of well, equality or fairness um, and what that looks like. And you guys have all had really great careers. So I guess my question is, how do you see the, uh, the, the perspective right now, like the time we're living in right now, uh, by comparison to when you guys started? Do you think that that is true or do you think it's kind of always been there and it's kind of irrelevant, it's just if you want it hard enough, go after it?
3: OK, I think that if you have come from a tech... There's very few tech-backgrounded female founders that I think have ever had a real problem. I think that the problem comes... and yeah, saying, yeah, 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 I know where you're going. But I think, like, I think the problem comes when you're coming from a non-tech background, raising money is hard, and, le- and, and you know what it is? It's not actually raising money, it's leading a team. Like, it's really hard to credibly... Uh, demonstrate that you can hire incredible talent and run a sharp, smart, productive engineering team if you don't have an engineering background. It's hard. You need that background. And so females that have got that background, I don't think I've ever encountered... I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of a single female that has that background that has had that problem. I think if you come from a non-tech background, it's harder because you you, you are needing to rely on other people and, therefore, there's a greater opportunity for there to be charlatans to take advantage of your weakness I think but I, I think i,
0: th- I like, honestly I think you've summed it up to it I've, I've never thought about it that way but that is exactly right because so my co-founder Jules um, she taught herself from a book like she picked a book up one day and was like the only way we're gonna get this company off the ground is if I learn how to code <laughs> she took a book so that she didn't have to she couldn't copy and paste you know from the internet <laughs> which I thought was genius like only she would be that self-disciplined she's such a geek lover and she taught herself to code and now, like, and I think, I think about it and, like, there is, like, no goddamn way that I could do this on my own without her. And I don't think she'd be able to do it also without me. So I, those I... eight
2: months that she proved she could.
4: <laughs> Dude, we sail <set>
0: up. <laughs> and I also had a great team. Um, but, no, I do, I actually think that if you're in tech, at the end of the day, like, I think if you don't have a technical co-founder, I think it's very, very hard and I feel incredibly blessed to have had Jules for this many years.
4: Yeah, no. We, I mean, if we, you know, we score companies we meet. It's absolutely a huge kind of black mark if it, if there's no technical, really yes. smart technical person on on the team because we're a technical VC. Like we only back tech companies, so it's sort of core to core to our model. Um, I, and I, you know, I would. Uh, I think you, we were saying backstage, uh, Jess Butcher, our friend. You know, I, I, I was like nodding because I think I have a similar view to her. Okay. Is I have succeeded. Because I'm a woman, yeah. not in spite of being a woman. Everything that's worked for me is, is being a woman, and I have absolutely used it to yeah. its... You know, and to in its fact, I'd even
3: go, and I, I, I say this often, that if being a woman is the hardest thing you have to deal with in your journey, you're, sorry, fucking lucky, because yeah. that is like the... Easiest challenge you're going to have to deal with. Like, if you can't handle that, if you can't handle a couple of dickheads in the corner that belittle you, Agree. you're not, you're just not going to make it. I'm I'm sorry, but that is the yeah. truth. Yeah. It is hard and relentless. And if you can't handle people that make you feel like shit sometimes, that's like that's like
0: peanuts in the corner. Yeah. But th- but that, there's two things that you need in order to get through that. And the first of that is a girl gang, like. You all need to find your tribe because I've got my women and they back me to the hill and I I survive because of them. And the second thing is fucking confidence. Like, even when you don't have it, you just fake it. Like, my favorite (laughs) thing to say, like, and you're going to laugh at this, but like, I got taught this in Canada like 10 years ago working at Accenture. When you've got like a big meeting, you just walk up to the mirror and you're like, I am the shit. I am the shit. I am the shit. You walk out, you breeze that meeting. So even if you're not confident, you can fake it. And that's basically what I do do on a daily basis.
3: You know my favourite thing that I was taught once in negotiation schools, and I still use it to this day, when you go into a meeting and you're late, women tend to say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm late. No, I was taught to say, you walk in and you say... Thank you for waiting, <laughs>
1: and then you start talking. <laughs> oh, that's a good one.
2: Good one. Um, Renee, you talked a lot um, like, well, earlier, just about the resilience required um, in running your business. And so I'm guessing, you know, I, I know you're not from the, the tech side of things, but two things that I was curious about. So one is, um, you know, your uh, y- your opinion on this, actually, like whether, <laughs> as in whether whether or not it has anything to do with. Um, Whether it's harder for a woman or a man or whatever, actually, it's just the attitude of resilience and being tough. And then secondly, obviously, you are in an industry, um, or certainly with Planet, which is more likely to have female founders, especially than tech. So is that what you've seen? Is that true?
1: When y'all are talking, I'm thinking, oh, that's so interesting. And it's really not my world. I work with a lot of female founders, and it's not necessarily big business. I'm always talking to women and saying, please don't raise VC money, Mm -hmm. you know, because the conversations I'm having, it's a lot of women who want independence, who want a really great work-life balance, who want to create something that they can do and still enjoy their life and have children and be the primary caretaker because, yeah, it's great if your husband can do that, but they can't always do that. Mm -hmm. Mine couldn't. So... I'm asking them to... Because a lot of women come to me and they say, I have this great idea and I want to be my own boss and I want to manage my own destiny. And then within a few months they're saying, and I need to raise money. And yeah. I say, look, <laughs> you're going to end up answering to someone, being told what to do, being made to jump through hoops. You're going to hate it. All the reasons you started your own business... the
4: window. Pardon? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I want to... Can I... No? Yeah, no after wait, your, after you're finished, done. I want to definitely want to kind of do a counter view on that. And I, the first question I ask them
1: is, how long do you want to do this business? Because a lot of them say, oh, well, 10, 20 years, 10, 15 years, maybe longer. And if they don't want to take on the world now, then you can take time to build a business. Even if there is competition, there's always competition. I'm not afraid of competition. So, and there are, there are bits that I cover around all of that. But it's not about raise money, do it fast, blah, 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 tons of stress, make millions. That's not what everyone wants. A lot of women are looking for meaningful work that they can do alongside having a family and having fun and doing what they love in life. And that's what I do. And that's where I spend my time. Yeah. So you guys are so huge and so successful and it's not necessarily where I
0: started. You know, I think it's phases.
3: Like, I think I've done the VC thing and I'm actually now thinking I'm going to challenge myself... To see how much I can do a different way next time, just because you're that's right.
0: so common of second time founders because exactly. that's exactly yeah. what I, I want to run a profitable business, me
4: time. too. Yeah, yeah. so Rosh, uh, so I know yeah. you think
0: we're bagging on your industry, <laughs> yeah, no, you, um,
4: no, and I don't mind, uh, I don't mind not, that it's really not for everyone, but there are a few women in here who are you know who want to raise VC money, and I think do your homework. Have an open dialogue of what that means. Understand what it means to raise VC money and go for it. Don't you know? Don't be satisfied with with not going for it because it actually can be an amazing journey. And there's there's also founders who've who've had an angels who've had an amazing journey. A uh, backing you know companies we're quite proud of, like Transferwise, who is now uh, nine years in a, a profitable business, uh, has you know. Few thousand employees um, does well by their by their team has done well by us as the first check in has done well by their angels has you know and there you know so there are businesses out there I think it's just do do your homework Um, don't be shocked by by sort of what is VC or what is not VC don't be shocked by you know your ambition I mean just go for it but it it is not for everyone but if you do your homework and you really want to go for it there are people. Um, many men who are extremely <laughs> supportive of that, uh, us, you know, us as well at as Um, But we're we're not apologetic about our model. Um, I'm in this because I love the pressure, because I love being, you know, being told, you know, do, asked, do you want to be top decile fund or do you want to be just another fund? And I want to be top decile fund, and that's why I work like mad, and I, that's why I have a husband who who's taking a step back, right? So I've I've definitely pulled a life together that allows me to be extremely ambitious and absolutely going for it. Um, and I think you know women shouldn't shy away from that and accept anything else if they don't want to, frankly. Yeah,
2: and I think um, to your point, like firstly, the do your homework thing is the most valuable insight because uh, most people don't, and myself included, first time around, I didn't really know what it meant to take VC money, and you know, it m- more for me, like I you should just know what you're getting into. But, you know, going through the stats at the beginning, you know, they they kind of echo where you're coming from, Renee, as well, which is, if you think about, so one in five businesses in the UK is run by a woman. But when I say that uh, one penny in every pound goes to women in VC, that tells exactly that picture, which is that actually one in five is nowhere near, obviously, as bad as one in 100. So the reality is, there's way more women starting businesses, but they're doing things that... They enjoy that aren't this crazy ride. They're not trying to get the fastest heart attack they possibly can. Um, and that is absolutely like a much more um applicable um and appropriate lifestyle choice.
1: And I always say to the women I'm working with, I do a life plan. We do a business plan, but it's 50% business planning and 50% personal development. But part of that is also your life plan. You know, are you trying to make a ton of money, and if you want to do that, great, then it's probably the VC route. But when you look at the end of your life, what do you, where do you want to be when you're on your deathbed? And I say that because it gives perspective, and yeah. it's hard when you're young to have that perspective. What do you want to have achieved? What difference do you want to make? Whose lives do you want to have touched? And think about your journey. Create that journey. You can design your life, and I love that consciousness yeah. because it's completely different now to when I was a kid, and that's the work I love.
4: I just don't think they're mutually exclusive. <laughs> can I give, I really, a, can I give I just, a third
0: way? Yeah, yeah. I um, so so cool. I, I think I sit somewhere between the kind of, like, um, slightly more uh, organic lifestyle <laughs> business and then the kind of, like, go really, really fast. And that's, like, Resi is um, a business that Jules and I laid out a bunch of parameters when we started it. We said... Mm-hmm that we wanted to have an EBITDA, so, i.e., profitability. We wanted to um, continue the kind of culture journey that we'd started Mm -hmm. at um, Hassle, which was all around equal paternity maternity, like, our staff being basically everything to us, and that we wanted to grow a massive fucking business. But we were going to do it by right financing it. So, right-size your finance. And so, the way that we've done it... And I realise I'm super blessed because I'm an exited founder, so... A lot of people want to back me, and also I'm a woman, so that makes me doubly attractive, um, because then they get to put that diversity tick in their box, you know. I mean, I'm, like, northern, working class, a woman. If I was brown, Jesus Christ, like, (laughs) it would be, like, a dream. Sorry. I'll I'll join
4: you. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) there
0: you go. And and I guess what that has meant is that, like, I've been able to go and talk to unusual pools of money, if you like. Mm. So I've not done the typical VC But I've also not done the kind of, like, bootstrapping. I've kind of gone in the middle and I've got a highly lucrative, very fast-growing business. Is it as fast as a VC-backed business? Maybe not. But then I think my business couldn't absorb $6 or $10 million tomorrow and spend it effectively. So I think that, actually, what I think now, if I look and reflect on one of your earlier earlier questions, is, like, what's different now to what it was like in 2010... I think there are more opportunities for financing. I think that um, there are more... I think that it's a great time to be a woman. I genuinely think that. I don't think it's easy, like they said. I think you have to have a thick skin, but I think it's a great time to be a woman because there are a lot of people, in light of Me Too, whatever you think about it, that are looking to tick a box and, hey, take advantage of it. I do.
2: (laughs) So, look, before we go to audience questions... Um, I just want to ask um, uh, a, a, a very quick one, actually, which is, um, if you were starting up again and uh, you were, you know, therefore a bit younger, that's not an age thing, it's just if you were starting <laughs> again, who do you think you'd be looking up to right now? What, what kind of people um, really impress you that you, um, you admire? <laughs> we talk <laughs> about this.
4: About there's this just, subject. like, a massive
0: gap, isn't there? there there's, like, is. old people and then no-one. Yeah. So, like, Jennifer Lawrence... Yeah, so backstage, <laughs> before this, we
3: actually were talking about this big question, knowing that this was coming, <laughs> and we all came up with actresses. She was Jennifer Lawrence. I was like... You were Julia, Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts, because I re-watched Pretty Woman, and it's good. It stands the test of time. <laughs> and, and I see her now as a 50-year-old woman, and I think that ageing as a woman is a really interesting thing that no-one talks about a lot, and I think we should... Because it's going to happen to all of you. Like aging, other than death and taxes, is I think that will happen to every single one of you in this room. And you cannot deny that some of your power lies in your youth, and that when you that goes. Mm. You have to think about what other
2: powers are at
3: your disposal.
2: Well, yes. Renee disagrees, it looks yeah, like. Yeah, I'm just shaking my head, honey. No, but
3: no, hey, but, but what I'm trying to say is that then you realise that there are other powers. And what, the reason I like certain actresses, <laughs> I like Juliette Binoche. I like, you know, I love the actresses because you see them on stage. That own wisdom and age as something that is to be enamoured and to be celebrated and that is still sensual... And I don't think there's enough of that. And I worry that we're celebrating youth too much and that actually there's... You know, I I want there to be more older women that are inspiring and that are powerful without having sacrificed the things that make
1: them who they love being. But I'd love what your thoughts are. (laughs) You kind of lost me there a little bit. Well, I think... There are qualities and attributes when you're young and there are qualities and attributes when you're older and they're completely different. And they don't have, I think they have equal value. They're just different. But I, I love my head now and I love my perspective and my understanding and knowledge and patience and calm that I didn't have when I was younger. And I had a different drive when I was younger, but that's less important now. So I think it's, it's fairly even. My role model when I was starting Planet, because there weren't many, was Anita Roddick. And I, I have her. Um, my yeah. executive coach Anita. was her like head of talent. Uh, Amazing, yeah, yeah, I agree. And there weren't a lot of role models for me then, and I had lunch with her one time, which was really powerful for me. But but for me now, it's funny, because y'all talked about it's our role models older. I am inspired by anyone, whatever age, who's following a business that they believe in, that makes a difference, that they have a huge passion for, that they can't go through life without doing. You know, it would kill them to not do that. And I have respect and I look up to those entrepreneurs no matter what your age. And see, I, <laughs> you
0: see, I, I, would, agree, I would absolutely agree with that. And I don't I don't necessarily think that age is a precursor to anything. It's just that like, when I look up, at the people that I thought I always admired, I read more things about them. So, like, Richard Branson, like, I realised, like, about his tax haven status, Mm. and I just don't understand why it's not... You're not proud to pay taxes. Like, I certainly was when I exited. And that kind of took the sheen off Richard Branson for me, and I can keep going through all of these people that are slightly older. And And what I'm excited about, genuinely, is I think there is more good tech, there is more ethical tech, and there are more younger people coming through that will wear their taxes as a badge of honour, that won't leave this island... God forbid, about Brexit when they've exited. And they'll put back in. And I, because I genuinely like, I don't understand millennials. A lot of people in my office have to translate for me because there's all kinds of stuff I don't get and I have to have explained. But I do see that in them. I do see that they want to make the world a better place and it's experiential rather than kind of material. Mm. And that gives me real hope for the future. Yeah.
4: I mean, I I think you have to be a little naive to pick any one person, Mm -hmm. frankly. I mean, in this world especially, you can tear down anyone. You can tear down each one of us up here as well. So I I would say, you know, my advice to you, um, looking at sort of who's out there and who who you want to be your role models is don't pick anyone, is pick profiles and and certain attributes of of different people that you think, well, this is what I'd love to be more of, or this is what I definitely do not want to be or or be less of. And so, so, yeah, don't be naive your homework pick you know pick a few people uh and and different aspects about them that uh inspire you and 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 you can sort of follow
2: that concludes the evening so thank you very much to our amazing guests (laughs) and you can listen to all their episodes which I'm obviously expecting that if you haven't already done you definitely will do I just want to thank everyone for coming and obviously now is the time to call them up on their superpowers etc by harassing them there's 200 people here, there's 4 of you enjoy that, go harass them before they run off, they've asked for it thank you very much everyone next week on Secret Leaders. I was like, wow, you know, you
0: can't get any decent food delivered here when you've been boozing. Then I was like, wait a minute, maybe I should start something that is a late night delivery service for food that you can get in like half an hour. You want it from McDonald's or BK. So that was like the initial idea. And I didn't take it very seriously, to be honest. You could say, well, why would you take this job? Well, it's because it's the biggest market in the world and we're early and we're fundamentally changing how people live.
2: That was Will Shu, the founder and CEO of everyone's favourite takeaway service, Deliveroo. Will is widely regarded as one of the most dynamic and impressive founders in the European entrepreneurship scene. Having built Deliveroo to become one of Europe's most valuable startups, he's also notoriously hard to pin down for even five minutes, let alone an hour. So we thought, who better to see this series off in style? So tune in next week or you'll miss out. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer, Rich Martell, editor, Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mag's Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer, Christina Nauru of smartupvisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, secretleaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at secret leaders or at Dan Murray Serta. And we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together secret leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs. But every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.